Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to Lost in Science for another week, your weekly half hour of science on your radio across Australia. My name is Claire and this week on the show I'm bringing you a story about krill who are krilling it or just killing it a little a little bit anyway yes those tiny little invertebrates from the southern ocean some new researchers found that they're actually doing better with ocean acidification than we thought they would which is good news for krill that is good yeah but okay spoiler alert it's not all good news is it ever? No. <laughs> Not on our show. Not on our show. <laughs> we always make sure there's a, you know, there's a downer in there down somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Stu, what do you have for us today? Well, uh, there's a Victorian election coming up, and I thought I would have a look at a, another election. Another oh. vote that happened um, more... last week, but it's not to do with Victorian politics or Australian politics. It's I'm to sure do with... a lot of people would be happy about that. Well, probably. I'm not allowed to talk about Victorian politics, but it's about science. It's about actually how we measure things on Earth. Here on Earth, all the scientists got together and had a vote on the kilogram. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, why weren't we allowed to vote? Oh, well... It was just the people who were allowed to vote who were allowed to vote. Vo- uh, scientists from 60 countries voted. Chris, what do you have for us today? I have – well, I have another – I realise I do I do these ad hoc series of stories. I have another story of physicists sticking their noses in where and doing stuff. That doesn't sound like terribly important. But Is that anyway. because the things that they can do in physics are either too hard, people can't understand them, or like what's what's going on there? They Why try is- to reach out to like common people and they get ridiculed for it. Like we had the spaghetti snap. Snapping story. <laughs> I we love had, the spaghetti snapping yeah, story. Yeah, I've got yeah. to say. Water plinking. That was great. Yeah. All those kind of things. Yeah. 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 Maybe maybe physicists should stop calling them reaching out to the common people and then maybe you <laughs> might get a little bit more traction with the common people. <laughs> common people are so hard to please. They want to live like common people. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so what what is it this time? Uh, this, uh, this time it's poo, I'm afraid. Yeah. Oh, it's, great. It's so great. physicists have been sticking their nose into poo. Is great. that what you're saying? Yeah, uh, particularly <laughs> wombat poo. Um, oh, good one. Physicists claim that they have solved the mystery of why of how wombats do square poo. I mean, is it square or is it cube? I mean, as a well, physicist, they're, they're you should really of, lock that well, down. Well, yeah, they, they say cubical. It's not, a, it's not a uniform cube. Let's be honest. It's not, we're not talking a... Rectangular per, prism. A perfect, you know, platonic solid here. But it <laughs> it's is... It's an, ob, um, an oblate prism. It is. Like, it is basically, <laughs> it is basically cubical, but... It's just got a square cross section. So they're taking the taking bit. the poo out of the cubicle and spreading it all over the place for everyone to see. Yeah. Well, stay tuned for that. On with the show. So, Chris, do you, when you think of food for the animals in the Antarctic? Food that's probably in large numbers, feeding even larger animals. What do you think of? Plankton. Yeah, plankton's constant. Like, st- 
um, the what plankton else? Is what constant. else? Come on, what else? I don't know. Well, I think krill is a kind of plankton, isn't it? It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't so, know how. The, plankton's just stuff that's floating around. Isn't so there's all plankton sorts of just stuff. stuff that's floating around? Yeah. Krill's actually it's a, a specific kind a of specific animal. specific species yeah. of invertebrate. It's yeah. the kind of thing that you see that um, giant whales feed on with their, their baleen, and you think, how, baleen, can there yeah. be, how can there be so much of this stuff that the whale's getting so big? Yes. Um, yeah, krill are pretty special for that reason. They are, like you say, the main diet of baleen whales, like humpbacks. And blue min- whales. And, yeah, minke. And, of course, the blue whale, as well as penguin seals and seabirds. But also, yeah, you mentioned that they congregate in really large numbers. Mm. There are krill schools that have been seen from space. Yeah. How big is a krill? A krill can be um, – so there's like many different species of krill, but an- Antarctic krill can, you know, be about an inch or less. Oh, and they yeah, look yeah. Like, kind of like a little tiny prawn, do they, or shrimp? Yeah, throw, throw some krill on so the barbie. So they're tiny crustaceans, basically. They are. Right. Yep, yep, tiny little crustaceans. Throw some krill on the grill. Throw some krill on the grill. That's great. Yeah. You probably have to make them into burgers, though. Yeah. They're, they're that small. Anyway, um, I'm, something else you probably didn't know about krill while we're talking about fun facts mm-hmm. about krill. Some of them can live up to 10 years. It's a long time Isn't for a, a tiny long little time creature. Mm. For a tiny little creature that, you know, swarms in large numbers and gets eaten en masse. I think that, that's, that's quite impressive. It's probably, you probably get a special prize for living that long as a krill. <laughs> A letter from the Krill Queen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, but um, yeah, so obviously these little pink shrimp, they are some of the most ecologically important animals in the world. But like everything else, they face challenges and not just from the whales that are eating them. One potentially huge challenge is that of ocean acidification. The process where carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you know, we've got a lot of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere because we keep on burning all the fossil fuels, increasing the amount of carbon dioxide, and then that dissolves into the ocean water. When it dissolves, it's no longer carbon dioxide. It instead forms carbonic acid. Mm. And of course, when you add acid to water, you make your water slightly more acidic or you lower the pH. And it also reduces the amount of free carbonate in the water. So carbonate is important to have in the water because that's where invertebrates, that's the sort of mineral that they get to create their shells. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. so animals like oysters, sea urchin, and then crustaceans like krill um, all need these sorts of um, carbonates. So if you can have more acidic oceans, you um, have, you know, not only you're increasing the acid and there's a whole lot of biological issues there, but you're also um, decreasing the amount of carbonate, which when you think about it and how important um, the krill are for the whole ecosystem in Antarctica, in, if we've got a rapidly acidifying ocean, then that's um, going to be quite a potential issue. However, new research published in Nature Journal Communications shows that krill are actually a bit more resistant than we think, a little bit more resilient. So the study looked at adult krill and how they survive, how they grow and how they mature um, in um, worsening and worsening acidification in mm-hmm. the oceans. The research came out of the Institute of Marine and um, Antarctic Studies and they took a whole lot of krill into the lab and they pretty much presented the krill with different levels of um, acidification, so ocean water with different okay. levels of acidification. They then had the krill in tanks for 46 weeks 
Um, so one tank was acid levels equivalent to today. Mm-hmm. One was what we would expect in a hundred years, and some was even more extreme than that. And then they measured all sorts of things for the krill, including um, survival, the size of the krill, what their fat stores were like, were they getting, you know, were they losing a bit of krill body condition, um, the reproduction, metabolism, and all that sort of stuff. And what they found was that the krill were getting along just fine. Oh, yeah, that's good. They news, just got on with being krill. Um, and yeah, so the adult krill were able to maintain an acid-based balance of their body fluids, um, as the seawater became acidic and they did this via this little active ion pump in their gills, which pumps bicarbonate and can maintain their acid base levels. So they actually have the machinery in their gills to help them deal with this ocean acidification. Okay, that's pretty cool. So they're basically buffering the pH on their own. They are. Yeah. They're buffering the pH wow. on their own. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Sounds like they prepared, like they knew something was up. Or or maybe they're just, you know, I mean, there's there's some um, relatives that live in deserts in Australia which come back to life after being completely dehydrated. I'd say the krill. There were krill in the desert? There were tiny little brine shrimp in the desert oh, that okay. are related. Like sea monkeys. Like sea monkeys. Yeah. yeah. So so I'm just saying that they they obviously are of a kind of creature that can exist in different harsh yeah, environments. Yeah, okay. So they must have all sorts of adaptations that they can okay. uh, swing into action when they yeah. need them. Yeah, and I mean, it's really great news considering uh, krill is such a key link in the food chain Um, and especially because ocean acidification is expected to occur more rapidly at the high altitudes. I mean, sorry, at the high latitudes. Mm. So um, the the southern krill. (laughs) The hall of the mountain krill? Yeah. Is that? The high latitudes (laughs) of the southern ocean and the Arctic Circle. Um, but of course, before we uh, rejoice that the krill will go on in the face of ocean acidification, the researchers do note that this study and the finding is on adult stage of the krill's life cycle, ah. not the other larval stages. Mm. Um, and turns out that larval stages are susceptible and vulnerable to the effects of ocean acidification. So... Yeah. So the adults can cope, but the juveniles yeah. can't. They need to yeah. go through that juvenile phase, don't they, before they become adults, as I understand. How, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, indeed. However, in the paper, it did talk about how the juvenile stages, they would, would go deeper underwater okay. than so the adult l- stages. So it's less acidic? And ocean acidification tends to happen at the surface. At the surface. So maybe there's some buffering there. I don't know. And, you know, I mean, I guess... Ocean acidification isn't the only thing happening in the Southern Ocean. It's warming, um, the surrounding ice is melting, there's a whole lot of other things that are probably happening to the krill. But in the meantime, I think we can agree that these resilient, underappreciated little swimmers are simply krillient. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. So the Victorian state election is coming up and enrolled voters will get to choose which state government will serve for the next term and early next year the whole country will do the same for the federal government. and Sometime out, next year, isn't it? Well, yeah. it's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be coming May. up. Yeah. Um, but last week a different kind of election took place where scientists from around the world got to vote on something else, something that hasn't changed since the 18th century. Wow. Was That's a, a long term in government. Was this a proper vote though? Like, did they have like 
like we go to the state election and you have like a list of candidates and you choose which one. Is this going to be like there was a whole lot of options? They all chose one. Let's or just, let's just say one option. In electoral terms, it was more of a referendum. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So really, they were choosing: do we keep things the same or do we change it? Right. Okay. What were they voting on? They were voting on the kilogram. Everyone knows that. Come on. And we we, we covered this story <laughs> last year. I'm sure when they when they were starting to talk about changing the kilogram. This is not something they take. Lightly. Now, people might think, well, a kilogram is a kilogram. It's a thousand grams. How can they vote on what a kilogram is? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, they did not vote on how much a kilogram weighs. Yeah. No way. No way. All right. Yes okay. way. Yes All way. Right. Uh, that, that joke was not good enough to okay. hear it three times. All right. <laughs> they, I've got more. I've got more. They were voting on how the kilogram is defined and against what standards specifically the the kilogram is measured so that everyone in the world is working on the same basis. So, a kilogram is the international standard unit for weight as defined by the Standard International, which is French. My French is terrible. Système International. Oh, Système International, that's true, Yes. They abbreviated SI. SI. So, yeah, the SI unit. Uh, It was set out in 1895 based on the gram, the gram being one cubic centimetre of water at the melting point of ice, which is what they defined it in 1895. They've since actually changed that because they decided that water wasn't at its densest when it was at melting point. It was actually at four degrees Celsius. So that changed later on. This stuff is constantly being debated. Fridge water. Yeah, Basically, water that drips out the bottom of the fridge. Um, <laughs> That's which, why they which, chose it because it was convenient, easy to come by. A lot except, of fridge water. except in 1895, probably, probably not wasn't. because who had oh, a fridge? Okay. Um, so, because um, yeah, so a thousand of a thousand grams makes a kilogram, which is equivalent then to the weight of a liter of water at its maximum density, which is around 4 degrees Celsius. So it's difficult to constantly maintain water at the temperature of its maximum density and also stop it evaporating and avoiding inconsistencies with containers in which it was kept. So they actually needed a standard. They needed something that weighed a kilogram and everyone agreed that it weighed a kilogram and they could measure everything against this standard. So this gave birth to Le Grand Quai, which is... Uh, the International Prototype Kilogram, uh, which is a solid cylinder of platinum-iridium alloy, which is kept under very closely controlled conditions in France. Wow. And I'm not sure why the French get to keep this, but it's obviously been there since uh, 1895. It lasted through two world wars and who knows how many World Cups, I don't know. But, you know, it, it was, it's been sitting there and it's in this, you know, glass vacuum bell jar thing and they take it out every once in a while. No human hand is allowed it? to touch it. I think you can go and sort of look into the room that it's in, but you really? can't actually get anywhere near it. And no, wow. one's, no one's allowed to touch it. No, one has, no human hand can touch the, uh, the uh, Le so Grand Cave. Um, they use tweezers and stuff they, and gloves and all the rest of it. But the thing is, if it gains weight or loses weight, it changes the standard of the kilogram all around the world. So everyone's standards will be off. Everyone's calibration will be off. So the international prototype kilogram is the kilogram. It's the kilogram against which all other measures of mass are ultimately measured. So um, periodically replicas or equivalents people have all around the world are compared to the original to ensure everyone's kilogram is the same. Although 
they did find uh, at one point that they brought all of the uh, the copies of it back to Le Grand Quai and found that they all weighed different, different. amounts. Oh. So either the prototype kilogram had lost weight or all of the other ones had gained weight and they or don't they really know. did them wrong in the first or place. Or they did them wrong in the first place and they yeah. so this is this is quite a big problem especially when you know it's probably not when you're buying a kilo of potatoes or anything like that but when you're doing you know very uh delicate scientific experiments and all sorts of things like that you know even payloads and things for sending things into space all sorts of things it has a huge impact whether you're accurate or not so it is important that we have something to compare it to so it is great to have a central object by which we can measure all things. But the whole idea of the system international and the metric system itself is that our measurements should be based on nature. So in other words, the measures of the universe should be based on how the universe works. Um, but obviously when they, when they started doing this, they made a whole bunch of mistakes while they were setting this up. The, the, the meter itself, which is the measure of distance, was supposed to be uh, a certain proportion of the circumference of the globe. It was a 10 millionth of the distance between the equator and the North Pole it was meant to be. Yeah, which they calculated wrong. So we're just using the meter that they calculated, even though it's not actually what they thought it was in the first place. But look, it's fine. So the scientist selections, what were they voting on? They were voting on changing the basic standard from using Le Grand K as the standard by which everything is measured against to measurements based on universal constants that could effectively be calibrated anywhere. Well, at least anywhere there is a kibble balance. So a kibble balance is not a thing for weighing out kibble. It was actually invented by a scientist called Kibble, um, who was a metrologist. Not a meteorologist, a metrologist, who is someone who studies measurement. Uh, And he came up with a balance that uses... Planck's constant to measure the mass of things. So what's Planck's constant again, Chris? Now, Planck's constant is, it appears in quantum physics, it relates the energy of a wave to its frequency. Right. It relies on quantum physics, but basically the constant is constant, and it doesn't matter where in the world you're measuring it. If you have the right equipment, you can figure out how to calibrate that to the mass of an object, and then you can weigh it accurately wherever you are. And this is basically what they were voting on. Um, so Kibble himself died in 2016, but the Kibble balance will be the new standard of measuring the mass of things. We don't have to travel all the way to Paris. Well, one less excuse to travel to Paris to, to uh, compare our masses to the, uh, the original prototype kilogram. Um, but the kibble balances will be used. They can measure small things. They can measure large things. And it will all be based on a universal constant. So it won't matter where you're doing it as long as your kibble balance is calibrated correctly. Um, which is, you know, that raises another question. How do they calibrate them correctly? We'll have to find out as that sort of comes into play. There are, there are kibble balances already in existence. So presumably they will build more as people demand them. But look, this change is not going to happen until May 20th next year, uh, which has been declared World Metrologist Day by the metrologists, presumably, <laughs> to mark the occasion and give people a reason to learn what a metrologist is. They also voted on changes to the definition of other SI units. They also were voting on changes to the ampere the Kelvin, and the Mole. But we don't really have time to talk about them 
today. We'll leave that for another. I actually came up with a, a name for this segment. Size doesn't matter because, <laughs> you know, if, we, if we're not worried about the actual object anymore, we can just focus on something completely different. So wombats are pretty amazing, aren't they? Oh, they really are. What what are you what are your, some of your favorite things about wombats, Claire? One of my favorite things about wombats is how they have that um, extreme pelvis. So when a fox tries to get um, in their burrow um, and they're you know facing yeah, yeah, yeah. facing away, yeah. the fox gets in the top and then they just crush them with their, their with their their dermal shield, I believe it's called dermal shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they just crush their them. bony. Bum plates. Bony or behind. Yeah. 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 That is pretty amazing, isn't yeah. it? Kill, yeah. Kill a, kill a wombat booty. Kill a wombat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a great name for a band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, that is one of my favorite facts about the wombat too. I will, I will admit that. The ability to crush their enemies with their bums. Yeah. yeah. That is pretty cool. One of the things they're most famous for though is what we're talking about today, which is that they have cubicle poo. Yes, that is also great. That is pretty good. Look, just, and just can really I just jump in and sense. say I like wombat heads as well, so it's not just all about the back end of the wombat. Their, their, <laughs> their faces are pretty cool too. Their yeah, faces are. are pretty yeah. cool yeah. as well. No, okay, yeah, so we're talking about wombat poo. You know, we're not shy from talking about poo here at Lost in Science. No, especially not you, Chris. Yeah, all right, well, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, okay. So anyway, so um, there has been development in the world of wombat poo in that some physicists – because uh, physicists think they can do everything, have from the Georgia Institute of Technology in the United States, they believe they've figured out how wombats do um, square poos. Um, it's pretty incredible that it takes a physicist from the States to figure out this. It is, isn't it? Very Australian problem. I want to point out something Not there. Not a problem, but a The physicists mystery. have figured out how the wombats do square poo. Not why. That wasn't the puzzle here. They figured out how. Hey, it's up to a biologist to figure That's out how. That's right. Or yeah. to figure out why, That's rather. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a, there was an existing um, theory for why, and that is because, well, basically, poo is stinky, as we know. And apparently, you know, wombats, they pile their poo up to mark their territory. They pile it outside their burrows on, you know, rocks and logs. You, you would have seen wombat poo around if you'd been mm. in a wombat zone. You don't want zone. it to roll. Yeah. And you don't want to roll away. No. Yeah. So that's why they do square poo. Um, how they do it, turns out, was not the obvious reason. No, what was the obvious reason? That they have square bum holes, ah. basically. Square anuses, if you want to. Right. That's like where your mind goes. Did your, did your mind not go there? Oh, just, yeah, I guess. But not only is it square, but it's but it's you know three it's three dimensions. Oh yeah, but they, it's square in three it's, dimensions, it's just, so it's, it's pinched off. I know, but they would have to have a square bum hole, and I guess like yeah, not just pinched off, but sort of, sort of like it's it seems like it comes it goes well, it in breaks, segments. Like, it's like one off. of those like off, one yeah. of those uh, compressors that crushes cars. It would have to sort of be <laughs> yeah. crushed from the side and then crushed from <laughs> the front and then crushed from. Well, the look, top. this research is mostly that's about... That's the most obvious answer. Yeah, that's the obvious answer. It's got a small com- poop compressor. compressor. This research <laughs> is mostly about the um, the cross-sectional side of things. I think we can probably answer the, um, the, the 
the lengthwise bit because they, they actually do take a very long time to digest their food. It takes about 14 days for the food to move through the warmest digestive system. And so it does get very hard and compacted by the end. And I think it probably just snaps off as opposed to being pinched off like other animals, other other animals, animals. such as yeah. ourselves. Um, anyway, but they have figured out the square cross-section thing and it wasn't square anuses. Um, so in this study, lead author, this was actually released, I should say, released at the, um, the meeting of the American Physical Society Division of Fluid Dynamics in Atlanta, Georgia. So Patricia Yang and her colleagues from Georgia Institute of Tech, they worked with wildlife ecologist Scott Carver from the University of Tasmania um, to collect intestines from uh, wombats that have been hit by cars. Okay. So, yeah, anyway, so the, what they did was they, they examined the intestines to see what's going on. They found that the magic, if you want to call it that, happens in the, like, the final 8% of the intestine. That's where the... The, the shape is formed. The shaping is done. Yeah, yeah. so they, they experimented on, experimented on it. They, they inflated the intestines with a balloon. They used like a like, kind of balloon that you would use for balloon animals. Okay. Like the long, thin ones. Yeah. They stick that down the intestinal tube oh. and inflate it to see what happens when there's something inside yeah. the, the intestine. Did the balloon go square? Well, it did. They found that there were like alternating bands of stiff and soft bits around. So the, the looking around the circumference of the intestine, it's not uniform kind of stretchiness. There's like stretchy bits and stiff bits alternating. So in the bits where it's kind of stiff, that's going to be the, the wall, the, the edge of the, the square. Yeah. And where it's really stretchy, that kind of pinches out, and that's the, the corner of the square. Oh. You see that? They found, yeah, the local strain, they said, varied from 20% at the cube's corners to 75% at its edges. So there's much stronger kind of force holding it in on the, on the edges of the square. On the corners, it just, yeah. It's allowed to stretch so it's out. It's more flexible in the corners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, this is what they're saying, though. Apparently, this, this is kind of... They're, they're stretching, stretching a bit here um, because they, they tried to identify these soft and stiff parts. And they, they found three stretchy regions and two stiff ones. And they reckon there has to be four of each to make the proper square shape. But they said that their, um, their balloon technique could not stretch the intestine enough to, to really get the limits of it. They needed something you know, harder and compacted like poo. And they so that's the next stage of the experiment, presumably, is to put real wombat poo in a intestine. I don't know how they're going to do that, but anyway, so that's what they that's what they have done. Um, now, as is the case with a lot of these things, you have to um, speculate about possible practical applications. Uh, they said that this could be a new way of making square objects. You know, <laughs> normally we will mould things, but now you could just like squeeze them through a tube and sort of, sort of like three D printing of cubicle objects. Maybe. Dice. Maybe. We could make a yeah. whole new way of making dice. Yeah. I don't know that we really need to come up with a, 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 um, an industrial application. I think it's just cool enough on its own. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, good on them. Well, that answers my question. Who amongst the scientists the most scatological? Turns out it's the physicists. It is. It is. And it was a pleasure to produce the, um, the turd of today's stories. And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science, where today we've talked about krill, kilograms, and 
Wombat Poo. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We are at lostinsci at gmail.com, Lost in Science 1 on Twitter, or find us Lost in Science on 3CR on Facebook. Or just tune in again next week when Stu, Chris and Claire get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.